Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. I think the key thing is having kit and the ability to be able to service your bike because it's the inevitable can happen and puncture or worse. So being able to fix it in the middle of nowhere um, and having spares to do that is, is kind of important. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tours from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 31 of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the opportunity to talk with Ben Davies, an ultra-distance endurance rider from England that has done some pretty epic bike touring before getting more involved in ultra-distance racing. Starting in 2017, Ben participated in the Transcontinental Race, and in 2019, he came second place in the TCR and third place in the race across Poland. For 2020, Ben is planning an epic fast tour from Cairo to Cape Town while raising money for World Bicycle Relief. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really, it's really great. Actually, uh, it was a buddy of mine who sent me your details and said, hey, check this guy out. He could be good for your show. So I did. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you. So why don't we start with just, you know, tell us about yourself. Yeah, no worries. So yes, I'm an Englishman. I'm a cyclist based in, in Bristol, which is, is down in the southwest of, of the United Kingdom. I've been cycling in, in one format or another sort of all my life. Okay. But sort of 10, 11 years ago, something like that, I got really hooked on long distance cycling and bicycle touring. And then over the past sort of three years, something like that, um, I've started to focus more on the ultra distance racing, that kind of side of, mm-hmm. of the cycling, sort of getting more into the racing. So, yes, it's a real passion for me and something I basically spend all my time doing as much as I can do. Nice. And um, what kind of past bike touring experience do you have? Okay. So, I mean, it all started sort of back in, I think it's 2009. I, w- I was finishing up university and I sort of, I was looking at it as that was my last, um, my last sort of summer holiday before, before starting the sort of real world of work. Right. Um, so I what I did is I went over to the to the States and I sort of had this, um, I guess it was like a romantic ideal about uh, heading west, I guess. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was my bi- first um, bicycle tour. Mm-hmm. Um, so I cycled Virginia to Oregon, 
in the States and then oh, nice. spent a few weeks at the end sort of cycling around California. And from then on, I was hooked, basically. And ever since, I've sort of spent as much time as I could build up, either holiday-wise or quitting jobs to do other bike tours. But yeah, sort of traveling as much of the world as I could do on the bike. I just found it was the best way to travel and see things and... Yeah, just just the being on a bike for a sustained mm-hmm. period of time. Did you cycle the Pan America as well? Yeah, you yeah, did, so right? I did that back in uh, twenty fifteen sixteen. Okay. Uh, so did I started in so started in northern Canada, mm-hmm. um, up at Yellowknife, um, and then spent about uh, five and a half months cycling down to Ushuaia at the tip of Argentina. Yeah, nice. Um, it, yeah, that was awesome. That was a really good, really good bike tour. And I sort of did it relatively fast. So was one of the sort of key drivers for me was like the, like I say, the sustained period on a bike. Um, so I sort of call it fast touring. I guess that was what I was looking at it. But uh, yeah, just did a route. I routed it myself, but basically followed the mountains the whole way down, which was just awesome. Well, I really like that term, actually. And that's why I put that into the intro is because... I think that's the first time I've heard it called fast touring. And I thought that's a great way to describe what it is because it's still touring. You're still having interactions. You're getting all the, the advantages. So I really, I really like that term. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely touring. I mean, it's, I think like I, I met, so Pan America, for example, I met other cyclists on the route. And I think this is one of the, the cool things about cycling. It just attracts so many different types of people. Mm-hmm. So the people I met out there, I was probably doing more than everyone else that I met. So it sort of probably worked out as about a hundred mile per day average. And I was meeting some people that were doing 20 mile per day average. I think that was the cool thing. There was just so many different approaches to it. Yeah. Uh, and everyone was sort of enjoying it in their own way. And I think if everybody tours the same amount of distance, you never cross each other because everybody's kind of like, evenly spaced right so if somebody's going faster somebody's going slower you actually have chances to interact with people yeah for sure i think you still you still get the opportunity to sort of take in the culture and meet the local people because i think so much of it's so much of that interaction is around eating and sleeping so i think you still do that if you're whatever speed of touring you're doing so that's a good point um, you still get that opportunity it's really cool how would you say traditional bike touring and fast touring are different? Oh, I, I don't know if they are different. I mean, it's just down to the, I guess, the motivation of the person doing it, really. But, uh, I mean, wh- one of my, when I say fast touring, I'm, I guess it's probably termed like bikepacking nowadays. I guess it's, I, I kind of look at it all as the same thing, really. But um, I, I'm really driven by sort of covering large distances and, I really enjoy the, the, the cycling element of mm-hmm. it. So I enjoy the period of time on the bike and pushing myself sort of more from the sort of physical side as well. Yeah. So yeah, Pan America, I didn't stop at all to do any of the more touristy type of things, but I don't think it detracted for any, okay. um, from anything that I wanted to gain from it. How far did you ride on average? So I think Pan America was, um, it was about a hundred miles per day, something like that. Okay. Some days would be longer and some would be a bit shorter. Uh, there was a, a, a bout of uh, food poisoning that I seem to remember that really cut down the mileage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. What made you decide to give ultra-distance cycling a shot? So, I mean, it's, it was a couple of things, really. I mean, it's still a relatively new sport. And I, mm-hmm. I remember, I think it was on the Pan America trip. 
sort of on the way around, I, I heard about um, the transcontinental, this cross-Europe race happening, and it was sort of, it really appealed to me. I'm really motivated by the sort of competitive yeah, me element. Too. So that was one of the drivers for getting involved. The other bit of it was the timescale involved. Mm-hmm. So in terms of logistics and preparation for ultra-distance racing, a lot goes into it. But the races themselves are much more manageable to fit into my work holidays. So TCR, for example, I have to book a couple of weeks off. And for me, that's much more manageable than a six-month bike tour. So there's a bit of a bit of that involved. Yeah, but it's, it's cover vast distances in a short period of time. It sounds cool. Yeah, see, I really relate to that because I'm a teacher, and in a very similar aspect, I have fairly good holiday sizes in the summer. But I want to see as much as I can, and similar to you, I like to push myself to see how far I can go and what can happen in a day. So I've registered for a couple of races this summer. Unfortunately, TCR was not on the the books. What, what have you got on the list for this year? What, what are you down for? Yeah, I'm doing the Trans-Pyrenees at the end of June if if it goes through, if it doesn't get cancelled. Awesome. Yeah. And that's the one by Trans-Siberica because I know there's two different Trans-Pyrenees. There's one organized by, I think, the TCR race organizers, and there's one by Trans-Siberica. Yep. So I'm doing the 1,000K Trans-Siberica. And then at the end of July, I'm going to do the North Cape 4,000 starting in Northern Italy. Oh, Once yeah. again, if it doesn't get cancelled, you know, so... Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Oh, they're two pretty cool races. Yeah, and I figured it would give me a a good experience in both cases because one is all mountains and I'm not the biggest lover. I mean, I love going down mountains, but going up is not my favorite. Um, <laughs> but I thought it would be really good. It would be a good experience and it would be, you know, a short one. You're pushing really hard. You don't have to take all my kit with me. Three, four days yep. kind of thing. Hopefully get it done in that time. Oh, no, that'd be really cool. What were your first two experiences of the transcontinental like? So the first one was, I was pretty green to it, to be honest. Well, yeah, my first TCR was my first ultra distance race. So it was it was very much go learn what it's about. And it was quite uh, a difficult year in, in ultra racing, I think, back back that in that year. So it, it was the year that Michael, who's the organizer of the race, he got killed doing a race over in Australia. So it was quite a difficult race from that perspective. And um, on the first night, there was another accident, which was which was really sad. So that obviously makes you approach the race in a certain way. And it being my first race, was very much sort of took it as a learning thing, mm-hmm. which meant that when I came back the second year to do it, I was a lot more confident around some of the off-the-bike type things. So... In these races, any stop time is is key. Um, you want to be moving as much as possible. So limiting your time off the bike, eating or sleeping are really key. Mm-hmm. Um, and how you approach that and manage that time is is sort of something that you well something that I found I learned a lot from doing different races. Okay, what is the key to to managing that stop time? Like how do you how do you plan your stops? So if I'm honest, I don't I don't plan them too much. Okay. Um, I'm more of a do any of this sort of stuff as I as I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the eating side of it, it's it's all about discipline and where you stop. So petrol stations are obviously very quick for stop, go yeah. in, pick up some food, and then you generally eat it on the bike. That's the quickest way of doing it. Sleeping, there are so many different approaches to this. Mm-hmm. People will tell you their approach is the best way of doing it. 
And I, I think it's just whatever works for you. Personally, I, I bivy the whole time because I really enjoy sleeping under the stars. Yeah. Um, but also I find it quite fast and I can sleep very comfortably outside. So it doesn't affect me in that way. Okay. How do you manage with um, charging devices and stuff? Did you have a dynamo or were you, did you have to once in a while end up at a plug-in place? Yeah, so I, I'm dynamo the whole time nowadays. Okay. Um, that first race that I did, I thought I would do this really good carryover from bicycle touring and have a solar panel mm-hmm. <laughs> that charged a battery, and it's great when you're touring. Yeah. Um, but racing, it was it was not good at all. So after that, I changed the dynamo, and it's it's perfect. It's power on tap. Yeah. What type of dynamo do you use? Uh, Sun. Sun twenty eight. Yeah. Uh, no, not That's the 28. The I've got the, um, whichever the other one is, okay. the smaller one. Okay, I'll check it out. So over the three races, I mean, you went from finishing, I didn't write down the place numbers, but I think 44, 16 and second or something like that in the three races? Yeah, I think it was 44, 10th, 10th and, and then second. second last year, yeah. Yeah, I think so. How did your game change? Like, how did your your planning and preparation change between those three races? I know you said the first one, you didn't have the dynamo. You, you probably stopped for longer when you're eating and stuff like that. What else? Yeah, I mean, the first one was in very much sleep. I was very sort of cautious on my sleep schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one, probably I learned the most in terms of actually racing. So after doing that second race, I was pretty comfortable with what I could get away with sleep-wise or what worked for me sleep-wise. Um, and also sort of you learn a lot from the route planning side of things. Right. Um, which roads are good and which roads you're comfortable on um, from a safety perspective, that kind of thing. And then from a physical side, I, I was able to take it a lot more uh, or approach it with a lot more structured training last year, mm-hmm. which helped me out massively. And how did you do that training? Was it mostly on the bike trainer or was it a lot of out and about in uh, within England itself? It, a bit of both, to be honest. So it was all weather dependent. Um, so I'm in the UK. So the winters are really dark and pretty wet. So a lot more a lot more on the indoor trainer in the winter. But as much as I can do, I'll do outside. Mm-hmm. I work full time. So it's weekdays. It's a lot more higher intensity, generally turbo sessions, and then get out and do longer rides at the weekend. Okay. And do you use a power meter at all when you're training? Yes. Yeah, I do. It helps when you're trying to make the most out of the time you've got. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that seems to be what works for me anyway. And do you use a certain online platform at all when you're training, like Zwift or whatever? Uh, for indoor training, um, no, I do it all off of, um, I just have set intervals that I'll do and I'll I'll watch YouTube or something like that. Oh, okay, cool. For people such as myself that will actually be taking part in their first ultra distance cycling events this year, what training tips could you give us that might help us perform better in ultra distance races? As a first off race, I think it's getting comfortable doing the back-to-back days. Mm-hmm. So you're doing long distance for long hours in the saddle and then being comfortable enough to get on the saddle and do the same thing the next day and the next day. So it, it's really good in advance of, of doing your sort of first race to have put a little block, a little tour, um, a little mock race, something like that together, just so your body's comfortable and it's not going to get, it's not going to be a shock to your body when mm-hmm. you're starting to do um, these back-to-back days. I think that's key, really. 
Yeah, I've heard that um, pretty much in under any circumstances, those first few days, they're rough. And then your body just kind of adapts and it gets used to this, the suffering that goes behind sitting on a seat for 18 hours or whatever. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it, that's definitely the side of things that you can train train in advance. It yeah. doesn't have to be the start of the race hurts that bad. But, um, but yeah, for sure, it's, it can hurt. I assume from your positioning in 2019 that you've gotten your your race equipment down to pretty minimal and pretty well set up to what you feel is very a successful criteria. What's your gear set up and how did how much did it weigh in total and what did you take with you? Oh, so I think well well for me I'm on a, a sort of a standard road bike so I ride a Cervelo R3 um, that's mm-hmm. what I rode last year so a comfortable fast road bike um and i, I think I, i'm relatively light set up um i use a, a tail fenero pack mm-hmm. um sort of a pack um which i use to put the vast majority of my kit into mm-hmm. um clothing wise it is very minimal so it's sort of a, a second pair of bib shorts and then clothing to suit the sort of conditions that you're going to be in so um, TCR is over a longer period of time and can be changeable weather. So it's, mm-hmm. you've got to have your rain kit and um, stuff like that available to you. Um, if you're doing a, a cold weather race, it changes changes of clo- clothing needs quite a lot. Yeah, when doing TCR, um, do you need to carry a, a down jacket or vest at all? Or uh, Personally, I don't. No. Some people do. Mm-hmm. But I feel that I have enough other layers that makes it okay. But I mean, you're you're right. You're you're up at altitude regularly on that kind of race. It can get pretty cold, and the weather can close in pretty quickly. Yeah, it depends how you handle um, cold yourself, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and how how quickly you want to get out of it as well. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get down the mountain. <laughs> so yeah, aside from clothing, um, I think the key thing is having kit and the ability to be able to service your bike because it's. The inevitable can happen and puncture or worse. So being able to fix it in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. um, and having spares to do that is, is kind of important. What kind of parts and tools do you carry with you? Uh, I think all of the standard sort of stuff. So chain links and uh, rear derailleur uh, mounts and sometimes spare spokes, that kind of thing. So as minimal as you can go mm-hmm. or as I can go, but all the essentials. And then the other bit, which is always a debate, debate for people, is sleeping gear. Yeah. And some people will approach it as so. The, the, one of the key rules of these kind of races is, or often for these races, is you can do anything as long as it's commercially available to anyone else. So if you want to, you can stay in a hotel. Okay. Um, obviously, if, if you pass your own house, you can't stay there, but you can stay in a hotel. So this is always one of the debates is what's faster or more efficient to sleep outside yeah. or to go to a hotel personally i always bivy mm-hmm. um so i've got a bivy and a sleeping bag liner with me in my pack as well um so that takes up a bit of space but i think also from a safety perspective it's really nice to have that just in case do you use an air mattress as well no no, no huh? wow <laughs> hardcore <laughs> now is that just a cut weight or just because you can just sleep anywhere when you're that tired yeah Yes, it's the second one. I think it's you get so exhausted 
Um, and to be honest, I I sleep out quite a lot, so I'm quite used to sleeping on a concrete floor or whatever else. So I'm generally pretty comfortable outside. Okay. How old are you? Uh, 32. Oh, you're still young. That's why. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it going to start to hurt more? <laughs> Everything will. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I find, I find that, you know, there there is that, like you said, there's that balance. Some people just do hotels. And of course, that cuts your weight. It makes it in some ways faster, but you still have to check into the hotel, carry your bike upstairs, convince them, maybe yeah. sometimes argue with them to let you take your bike upstairs. But at the same time, you know, those few hours of sleep are really good. Good, clean sleep where... On a bike, you don't have any, a lot of the hassles, but the sleep might not be as good if you're bivying. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly the argument people will use. Mm-hmm. And it, it just comes back to whatever you're comfortable with, I think. I haven't got my bivy bag yet, but I'm getting one. So I uh, haven't decided what brand yet, but I'm on a budget. So it's got to be a fairly cheap one. Yeah, there's, there's so many options, but I think you're going to be in some pretty cold areas, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm not sure. It'll be summer, so I don't know how bad it'll be. But yeah, I'll have a... My plan is for the bivy bag, I have a an inflatable air mattress, so not one of these self-inflating ones, but it's a little bit thicker. And um, a sleeping bag liner is, I think, the way I'm going to go. And then if I have to wear clothes, I'll just wear clothes. Just uh... Yeah, for sure. And do you carry a second jersey? I know you carry a second bib short, but do you carry a second jersey as well? No, I just smell really bad. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I, I mean, I carry a long sleeve jersey. Mm-hmm. But no, just a single short, uh, short sleeve. Okay. What equipment do you carry regarding redundancies? I know like backup navigation, lights, things like that. When What do you use? So I don't carry like a backup cycle computer. Okay. So I just, just have the Wahoo. I guess the fallback is your phone, but it's only going to get you so far. And then I think the other bits of it is a lot of these races, um, they'll stipulate that you have a second front and a second rear light anyway. Okay. Um, and, and generally powered by a different means to the other one. And uh, that's a totally sensible thing to be doing generally anyway. So I have a dynamo front light and a, a USB front light, and I have a battery backlight and a USB backlight. So okay. it works really well. So you've always got something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. So you use the Cervelo C3, you said? Uh, the R3. Did you find it's necessary to use a, a road race bike to do them in a, in a fast pace? And do you find it hard on your back and stuff because of the aerodynamics and positioning on a road bike like that? I think in two, two questions. I think it's definitely not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you look at lots of the sort of people that are finishing top 10 in these races, there's a real difference in bicycle um, and what works for different people. So some people are on a road race bike, carbon fiber sort of thing, like what I'm on. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are on a steel titanium frame and will say it's more comfortable and dirty. So I definitely don't think it's a requirement for sure. It's just what works for me. And I'm, I'm quite small. Mm-hmm. So the geometry, the position on that particular bike works really well for me. Um, so I don't feel that I've got to be more upright or anything like that. Okay. And you use, uh, you have aero bars as well, I'm sure, right? Yeah. So d- again, it depends on, on the race. So I did um, a Trans-Pyrenees race last year and didn't put TT bars on just because it was a mountains race. But um, yeah, generally, yes. And was that Trans-Pyrenees? Was that the one organized by the TCR organizers or? Yeah, by Lost Dot. Yeah. Lost Dot, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, good. It it, it didn't go well for me though. No, why? I, I drove down. <laughs> I drove down to Beirut from the UK, and uh, I picked up a sickness bug on the way down there. So yeah, I think I got about, I think it's two hundred k in, and uh, started to be very vomity. So it wasn't very nice. Okay. No. <laughs> Can you tell us about your your second place race, uh, the TCR two thousand nineteen, where it started? how you planned your routes, just things like that. Take us through your, your process, just uh, for A, for me, and for anybody else that's listening that's interested in doing these kind of events. No worries. So last year's race, um, it started in Burgas in Bulgaria um, and finished. It was a proper um, coast-to-coast this year, uh, last year. Okay. So it finished in Brest in France. And the way it works is there's, there's set checkpoints throughout Europe that you've got to pass through. But everything else, everything in between those checkpoints and a specific route next to the checkpoint that you've got to take, everything else is self-routed. Okay. So it splits it up pretty nicely um, in terms of how you approach it. I mean, some countries, there's relatively few options of which road you would take. So I think particularly in 2019, that first part of the route through Bulgaria and um, then a little bit further on from that, a lot of people were doing a similar type of road. I mean, my approach to it is I, I've always used um, Ride with GPS um, routing software um, mm-hmm. to sort of do my mapping and routing on that. And it r- really is a case of you kind of start to get comfortable with what type of road suits you and that you'll be comfortable riding on because the, the safety part of it is obviously super important. And then things like Google Man, that really is your friend. Some countries, obviously, it's not available, but where it yeah. is, it's really useful for sort of seeing what you might be coming up against. In continents like Europe, um, you're never too, too far away from things. So food stops and places to sleep and that kind of thing is not generally sort of a driver for how you need to do your route. Generally, you'll always find something. Okay. So you shouldn't plan your route based on like, okay, I should stop at this hotel and sleep because you might feel good and want to keep going and or you might have already felt bad and took an arrest before that, right? So I think, again, everyone has a different approach. Um, some people will be very much like having that structure is useful to them. But I, I've heard stories that it works in both ways. So if you set yourself a schedule and you're not hitting the schedule, it can be depressing. And if you set a schedule and you want to go faster, then you're restricted because you don't have a plan and you feel like you might need one. So I always approach it as a, I've got a, I've got a full route that I need to mm-hmm. complete. I want to complete X distance per day and sort of approach it that way. And more approach is whatever comes, I'll do that. Okay. What was your goal on a daily basis for this race? I mean, it's, it's in the region of 400k. Okay. 450k, something like that. That sounds brutal, but it's, I guess it's doable, right? And how many hours a day did you have to ride to reach that? In general, I guess mountainous days, of course, it's different and flat days are. Yeah. I mean, it's, I probably have to look back, but it's probably something in the region of 16 hours a day, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really one for going back and analyzing the races. <laughs> Fair enough. You achieved an a awesome position definitely a very awesome position so i mean uh, you don't have to go back and overanalyze <laughs> yeah. it how far were you behind the number one finisher um i think it was 
eight hours. Okay, wow. Seven hours, eight hours, something like that. And did you spend time after thinking like, oh, where could I have cut seven, eight hours? Or did you just say, it is what it is? <sighs> to be honest, yeah, I, I kind of just took it for what it was. Mm -hmm. um, you can kick yourself as, as many times of as course. you want, but ultimately that was the way it went. So, But for sure, there was things you learn. Mm -hmm. um, so there will definitely be takeaways that I won't make the same mistake next next year or things like that. And I, I mean, I had a few issues this year as well. So you always try and cut those out as well. Yeah. What were the greatest challenges or the most difficult challenges throughout the TCR? I mean, for me personally, I got really bad saddle sores on about day two, three. It got pretty uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up having to stop at a clothing store and buy some sort of cheap what is it like uh, gym shorts just to get some uh, downstairs and dry out a little bit. Oh yeah. Um, so that, yeah, it got pretty, pretty bad for um, a couple of days. And, and then how when did you it go dried out and, Yeah. So I, I cycled with some um, gym type shorts um, for about half a day and okay. really got aired out and then um, painkillers and Savlon and it worked a treat. Painkillers <laughs> and what? Uh, Savlon. What's or um, like a anti antiseptic cream. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of people using like um, maxi pads and getting them extra coated, so then the shorts don't get dirty, and it allows that you know to have that fresh change every few hours. And I've read some pretty crazy stuff, but I guess you've got to do what you got to do, right? <laughs> yeah, it gets pretty unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> Any other challenges <laughs> to talk about? I mean, it's. <sighs> The, the terrain that you're coming up against is challenging for sure, mm -hmm. but that's al almost the bit that is the most appealing to me. Right. So we did we did one day in the French Alps, and we did um, what was it like four passes in the day, or five passes in the day, and in theory, physically, that's like a very big challenge. Yeah. But actually, it was awesome. I, I say it's like the best day I've had on the bike ever. So. It's, it's really tough, but it's one of these things you always look back mm -hmm, and go, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it was all cool. It was all worth it. You enjoy it during the during the moment as well. Yeah. And doing four or five passes like that means you get to go down four or five times, which is epic. <laughs> yeah, it is all good. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, and, and I know usually the checkpoints are in some kind of altitude location a lot too, right? So like there's sometimes it's a climb up and then back down after just to get that stamp. Yeah, but often it's that way for sure. I think looking to this year's transcontinental, there's other checkpoints that are not up mountains. So we're going to be doing one in Roubaix. So the flatlands of France, but proper mm -hmm. cobbled cycling. It's going to be incredible. Okay, that should be good. Yeah, for sure. You're not doing it this year, right? Because you've got other plans. Uh, no, I am planning to do it. Oh, you are? Okay, that would be after then, right? Yeah, Epic. yeah. So basically... I'm going to have a gap between um, between the two and okay. should be back and hopefully rested before TCR. Now, do you mind if I ask, if you finish the race one year, does that give you an entrance into the next year's race or it's all the draw again? Um, if I'm honest, I don't know the details of how they how they pick out names. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if you've, if you've sort of done a good race in previous years, because one of the things is they it's a race, so they want to have a good field there mm -hmm. as well. It's mm -hmm. open to everyone, but it's got to have a good sort of proven field there as yeah. well. So I think there's a number of things to get taken into account. But you've got to apply just the same as everyone else. Right. 
in your TCR 2019, did you manage to get any proper sleep throughout it? Or, I mean, you never take us, I'm, I'm assuming you never take an eight hour sleep, or do you? No, no. Um, the closest I got to that was on the final, final sleep, and mm-hmm. uh, my alarm didn't, it either didn't work or I turned it off, and I had a bit of a panic after. I think it was about five or six hours sleep, maybe okay. five hours sleep and, uh, when that hadn't gone off. But no, in general, it's for me, two to four hours sleep every 24 hours, something like that. Okay. I mean, it's short, but you got to train for it. You got to obviously practice and um, and be ready to be on your bike, right? Yeah, for sure. It's it's one of these things. I don't I don't train for it, but I do other races, which then makes you learn from those. So you sort of get a feel for what, what's, mm-hmm. what works for you. And it's always one of these things you've got to weigh up of less time stopped, so less sleep. And how does that affect you on in terms of speed? So there will be a tipping point where less rest means that you go too slow. That's um, right. So it's, it's whatever works for you. And then obviously the safety side of things as well. Um, so that obviously comes first in whatever decision making you do. And what speed do you usually ride when you're going on, let's say, flat ground, not like climbing? A I think it, it generally, I think it sort of averages out about 25k per hour. Okay. Uh, what do you eat? So you said um, a lot of it is like, I'm assuming corner store, gas station food. Do you just fill your pockets with granola bars and stuff and go for it? Or do you do you ever stop <laughs> for those hot meals? It's pretty much all um, petrol stations and bakeries, mm-hmm. which sounds awesome. But after 10 days, it's quite hard. <laughs> like, there's only so many croissants you can eat. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, um, but yeah, it's, do the petrol stations have microwaves where you could just like warm something up quickly? Or it's, it's got to be quicker than that. Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used their race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Mangin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Um, yeah, I, I guess some do. I think it's, you, you basically take what, you're, what you can get mm-hmm. often. True. Um, in in places like France, you haven't got many choices. You you really do take whatever is open, and whatever they'll give you. But yeah, when you go to Eastern Europe, really good petrol stations, you can probably have a hot meal if you want to. Oh, okay, cool. Um, or you can have any chocolate bar you want. So it's all good. Last question about the TCR stuff. At the start of the race, are you carrying a bunch of like energy gels and electrolytes and all these things with you already? 
Uh, no, no, not at all. So at the start line, I'll just have general food, so bars and stuff, sort of um, muesli bars, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. to get me through the next, well, the first bit of the ride. Yeah, so you don't carry extra stuff because you don't need that extra weight and everything, right? No, no, it's not worth it. Okay. Other than TCR 2020, what do you, are any other ultra distance uh, endurance races planned? Um, so TCR is the big one for this year. Okay. There will be, it's all very up in the air at the moment about what's actually happening, but there, there will definitely be some more later in the season. But between TCR and Africa, which is coming up beforehand, that's kind of my headspace at the moment. Awesome. Let's talk about it. Cairo to Cape Town. Yeah, it's going to be cool. Theoretically, starting in April 2020, do you, are you worried about the, the start date because of corona and all this stuff? Yes. Yeah, if I'm honest. So it's it's all really up in the air at the moment. There is, as, as of today, there's not a restriction that means it can't happen. Right. So Cairo to Cape Town, I'm going to be going through eight countries. So there's quite a lot of variables about whether or not it's going to be allowed to happen. And then you get into the whole thing of if it can't happen when it's planned, there's a number of things to consider because you go into what's the climate going to be like at other times of the year Yeah. because I'm basically going at the time that it's most preferable, I think, weather-wise before it gets too, too hot. Mm -hmm. And then visa restrictions. The visas I've got at the moment are too restrictive to just shuffle it a few weeks or a month. I wouldn't be able to do that on what I've got at the moment. Yeah, I think your Sudan visa, right? That'd be the uh, the one one of the tricky ones. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, Sudan is hard. So I, I've basically I've got to be in Sudan before the fourteenth of April. Okay. Otherwise, I don't get in. Damn. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, what made you decide to do Cairo to Cape Town? So it's, it's been in my head for, for ages, actually. I think it was after Pan America. Mm-hmm. I said to myself, I want to do um, top to bottom of Africa. It would be an incredible adventure. Um, lots of different cultures and something sort of very different from what I'm used to. So I, I think it'd be an incredible trip. How long are you planning for it to take? Uh, it's, it's an interesting one. One of the goals, I have a number of goals for the, the rise. One is to do it fast. I think something in the region of 40 days. Okay. Would that be a record attempt of some sort? So th- there is a world record for Cairo to Cape Town. It's um, it's forty one and a half days, something like that. Okay. So it's I feel like it's feasible, and yeah, ultimately I want to see what I can do pace wise. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Are you using the same bike as you you were using for TCR for this event? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ride the R three again. Okay. I will just say this, carry an extra bottom bracket. You can't source that in Africa. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, I agree. I think there's going to be a lot of things that you can't source. Yeah, so I've, yeah. got, uh, I've got spare bearings. So I think it will be a side of the road bodge if I need to get those in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, what kind of extra parts are you carrying because of the Africa factor? Yeah, so uh, more than when I'd be racing. So of course, um, I, I've got pretty much something to be able to patch together everything on the bike. So I, I think that's one of the sort of key things for me. I'm riding a rim brake bike, and I'm riding a mechanical um, shifting bike. Mm-hmm. Um, so cables and pads and all of that thing, sort of things that are pretty easy to fix on site. Yeah, either brake or fix. Yeah, that's true. Um, so should should be able to budget and then. There's very few places to be able to pick stuff up. 
I think in Nairobi is probably the place that I'd be able to get stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's it's one of these things like um, I've always found in the sort of more developing countries, if you need to get something fixed, there's generally a way to do it, even if mm-hmm. it's not the perfect That's right. OEM parts, there's a way to do it. That's true. How is your setup different for the Cape uh, Cairo to Cape Town as opposed to when you're doing a TCR race? Like, how many? What what bags are you using this time, and um, what are you carrying extra? So, in terms of like how it looks, my setup's really similar to to racing, mm-hmm. um, just with more um, ability to carry stuff. So, I've got a, a tail fin arrow pack off the back, which is is pretty. It's a pretty cool bag because you can actually it's got something like a 20 liter capacity so you can actually pack it pretty high if you need to and then tail fin they've also made me some bespoke sort of frame bags oh yeah oh cool yes it's it's not a full frame bag it's going to be like a a top frame bag so Mm -hmm. just just above the bottles and on top of the top tube Mm -hmm. um so that should be pretty cool because it's it's one of the problems i have I, i ride a really small frame so you were mentioning that, you're pretty right? restricted on what you can what you can fit in there. So other than that, it's it's not a huge amount different from from racing. And do you use a handlebar roll? Do you have like a handlebar whatever you call it, the dry bag? A handlebar up? bag? No, so I don't. I have um, I always ride with a bit of bungee cord around my TT bars. Mm-hmm. So if I need to strap some food or something, I can strap it on on there. But I don't have a bag up front. Okay, I I've got. Like uh, above the wheel and up to the TT bars, I've got so little space. So, um, so there's the whole aero disadvantage part of it, having a, a bar bag. Yeah, it's a big disadvantage. Um, but also I just don't have the space. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What are some of the biggest challenges with completing this ultra distance adventure as you go through Africa? Well, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's always the unknowns that catch you out. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's the sort of starting point. But I think the the northern countries, for lots of different reasons, are going to be the biggest challenge. So I've heard lots of stories about um, the police and the bureaucracy in Egypt. What's your plan for that? Well, I think it's it's just a reality over there. So you just got to take it as it comes, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's going to happen. So you might as well embrace it. Right. And if it slows you down, you can't get too frustrated about it because it it doesn't help anything. But yeah, so there, I believe that there's going to be lots of police following you during mm-hmm. the ride and passing you on between um, different checkpoints. I was going to say, I think when you got the police, you know, and if you have downtime between the two different escorts, you use that time to rest. And then when you have the police there, you just push it as hard as you can and 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 try to gain back any time you can, knowing that you've got another rest coming up probably not too far away. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be super interesting. Like, uh, and it, it seems like they approach different people in different ways. Is you hear different stories from mm. from people. So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then moving into Sudan, I guess the the desert is going to be pretty crazy. There's some quite long distances to sort of cover between any refueling points. Yeah. Are you planning to ride more at nighttime or what's the what's the idea there? Yeah, so I, I think it, it all depends on how I end up feeling. Mm-hmm. But um through the desert it's probably safe enough to ride through the night. I think in general through Africa I'm I'm not gonna be doing too much night riding. Right. I'm gonna be trying to do as much as I can during daylight. But for the desert because of the heat 
probably do a little bit more of that. What about Ethiopia? <laughs> I, I reckon you might be getting at the uh, the stories about kids throwing rocks that you made little shits, I think it's huh? <laughs> <laughs> have you experienced it I haven't I haven't been there but I mean I've heard about it continuously <laughs> okay yeah there's some pretty bad stories that uh, the kids will throw rocks at you so which must be pretty unpleasant actually it's, it must be pretty scary mm -hmm. but again so many people say that that's the reality so I guess you've just got to get over it and and try and push on. Yeah, cross your fingers, um, hope for the best. And uh... But on the flip side, Ethiopia looks incredible. Like the mountains there look super fun. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited about that part of it. So yeah, it should be cool. What do you most look forward to in, in Africa? That's a really good question. I mean, from from the ride, I think it's going to be the, the scenery and the wildlife mm -hmm. and the different cultures. I mean, I think that's it's just so different from or it should be so different from riding in Europe and, and the Americas that like it's, it's something totally different that's exciting. It's going to be an adventure. But then on the other side of it, it's just uh, like 40 days solidly on a bike. That will be really cool as well. So there's sort of two sides to it. True, true. Do you have insurance already? Sort of. Because I've heard, um, I've heard I people have, saying it's some... harder to get now and it's gone up in price and stuff because of coronavirus. Oh, yeah. I think I wouldn't be able to get anything additional now. That bit's probably gone. I have some level of um, travel insurance through, I think it's my bank account. Okay. <laughs> so um, I need to check, really, because it might need to be used, I guess, if the coronavirus thing mm -hmm. really puts a halt on it. We'll see. But not, not proper insurance anyway. Yeah, true enough. What do you do for a living? Um, I'm, uh, I work in composites research, so sort of carbon fiber and and that kind of thing. Oh, no way. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. But I, I'm on the sort of project management side, so more, more the setting up mm -hmm. and dealing with the customer projects. Yeah. Are you are you okay to talk about your sponsors? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Uh, you've kind of mentioned them a bit throughout, and uh, I'm sure it wasn't just a plug for them because you're, you're talking about your kit and equipment and stuff. But um, who are they and how did you go about getting them? Well, t to be honest, I'm, I'm really lucky with the sponsors that I've got because um, it was all kit and equipment that I was using previously anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and then from using the equipment, the sort of relationships developed pretty organically out of that. And I think for the type of riding that I do, I've got to be really confident in what I've got. Yeah. And you don't want to get in the middle of the desert and then something to break because it wasn't the best that you could have or what you actually wanted to be riding. So that's that's super important to me. So yeah, for, for this year, I'm teamed up with Ride with GPS. So they do route planning software and sort of a, a platform that you can load your rides onto. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been using them for years, doing all of my rate, race um, route planning and doing that for years on, on their software. Um, so it's really cool to team up with them this year. I'm also partnered with Tailfin Cycling, mm -hmm. who they do um, bike packing packs. Um, but they've got a pretty unique sort of solution for packs. Um, but they're they're a local company to me. Um, they're based oh, in they? Bristol. Okay, they, cool. Yeah, they're just down the road. So it's really cool because with the with the pack that I used, the Aero Pack, I met those guys a, a good few years ago and sort of saw that through the development and was able to give feedback to them on how the product worked which helped them from a product development perspective, yeah. but also helped me massively because 
ultimately you're tailoring a piece of equipment that you really want to use. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, yeah, it's awesome. Um, and then I'm also teamed up just recently with Fellow Bicycles. So I rode their, one of their bicycles last year um, throughout the season. It was a bicycle that I purchased mm-hmm. um, and then teamed up with them for this year. So it's, it's really cool. And did they give you a new, new model or what are they doing for you? Yeah, so for Africa, I'm actually racing on my own personal bicycle from them. But yeah, they've, they've helped me out with another bicycle to race and train on this year as well, oh, which nice. has been really useful. Yeah, it's really cool. And when you have sponsors in these things, in these things what are their expectations? Like, do, how do they ever, how do they state their expectations? Or is it just kind of a, we're doing this for you because we like the exposure we're getting and you're getting good results? To be honest, I mean, it's different sponsors have um, different requirements. The, the guys that I'm teamed up with, on the most sort of simple and basic level, they want to help enable me to do what I do. Mm-hmm. So either racing or doing different kinds of rides, that kind of thing. Um, and it is, um, I'm sure, beneficial for, for them, for other people to see that I'm using their equipment. But I think at a real grassroots level, it's they enjoy that kind of racing. So they want to right. be involved with it and helping someone. But then there's there's other things that you're sort of required to do or can help with. So the product development side is definitely something that is useful. But then also things like providing race reports and ride reports and mm-hmm. that kind of thing that they can share with their communities and, and that kind of thing. I wanted to jump forward. You, I know you're doing this, uh, this ride through Africa um, and you're fundraising for World Bicycle Relief. Can you tell us about it? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's... World Bicycle Relief, they're an incredible organization. And what they do is they they place bicycles into communities around the world. Basically, these communities are sort of where people are restricted in their um, ability to travel or access different things. Mm-hmm. So if, if it's children getting to school or people needing to get to medical supplies or hospitals, if you don't have access to trans- a method of transportation, um, it's such a restriction on their life. Mm-hmm. So by placing these bicycles, it's an enabler for, for these different people around the world. So, yeah, it's just a, a really incredible organization. So I thought this was a really good opportunity doing this car to Cape Town um, to raise some funds for them. Okay. And what's your goal? Uh, like, what's your goal to raise for them? In terms of financial value. Or what are your goals in general, I guess? Okay. I mean, so I've, I've got a Just Giving page up which okay. is trying to raise £1,100 uh, for the 11,000 kilometers that I'm going to ride. Oh, nice. But it's sort of, we'll, we'll see where it goes, I think. But it's, it's just something I was sort of very passionate about. I mean, it's um, a few years ago, um, I volunteered for sort of six months at a, a community bicycle shop in the UK. Okay. And it's, it was sort of like what World Bicycle Relief are doing on a much wider scale. So we would, at this bicycle um, workshop, we would do things like uh, workshops for refugees in our local community. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd have these refugee kids would come into us sort of over a six-week period, and we'd teach them how to strip down and build up an old second-hand bicycle. And oh, then cool. they'd get to take the – yeah, it was awesome. And they'd get to take the bicycle away at the end of, of the six weeks. But then you would see the impact it, it had on them and – well, for the kids and their parents, even things like getting to go to a job interview, if they didn't have that bicycle, 
they either wouldn't get to go to the job interview or they would have to spend what little cash they did have on a bus. And it's it was just such a, you could see the difference it made for these people. So I think if if I can raise a little bit of cash for, for World Bicycle Relief, I can see directly what um, what impact it's going to have. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing organization too, because like I think when the person's involved and rebuilding the whole bike and stuff, then it becomes important to them. And it doesn't become just like a handout because they put so much of their own effort and time into it that it becomes it becomes valuable, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at, at that workshop, we had, we had great fun. and The kids, they all learned a skill. So bike mechanics skill. Mm-hmm. We'd teach them how to ride the bicycles at the end if they didn't know how to and do their uh, we have like a, in the UK, we have cycling proficiency. So just getting confidence on, on the bicycle and riding with other people and on roads and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, for sure, they had a bicycle that they, they painted them at the end. That was oh, cool. the last class. They'd paint the bicycles. And uh, yeah, so they had some pretty crazy bikes going out the door. And, <laughs> uh, it was super cool. <laughs> cool. Anything else you want to share before we um, end this? Ah. That I'm missing. No, I don't think so. No? All right. Where can people find out more about you and follow your adventures and, of course, donate to World Bicycle Relief? Okay, awesome. Yeah. I mean, probably the best, most direct way of, of sort of getting contact and following would be my Instagram, mm-hmm. uh, which is at Ben G. Davis. And I also, I've set up a website which um, will have a tracking page for Cairo to Cape Town. Um, so that's bengrahamdavis.com. Um, and from there, you'll get a link to um, my Just Giving page as well, if you're interested in donating to that. Awesome. It was a real pleasure having you on this podcast. I always say there's so many different styles of touring and stuff. And some people really like that. It's they, when I talk to just long distance bike tours or, and, and they, I think many people think that just fits into one category. But I, I enjoy all kinds of interviews and all kinds of questions. And, and um, with my upcoming events, this is really nice to have some more information and to, to gain from your experiences. So thank you, uh, Ben. No, thank you very much for having me and good luck this year on your races. Thanks. Yeah, hopefully it all goes well. I, I don't have high hopes for the mountain one because I'm not the best climber, but I just want to get that experience. And um, basically, I wanted to just get away from Canada as soon as I could for a bike tour. And um, now with this whole Corona thing, who knows, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully it all settles down and or yeah, hopefully you get to do it at some point. And you too, I hope um I hope Africa doesn't go into a bigger lockdown in the next what, it's just two weeks or so. So I, I hope that um you're able to get all this going and get through where you need to get through before anything happens. Yeah, fingers crossed. Thank you. Yep. All the best. Cheers. All right. Cheers, Chris. Bye. Bye bye. I just want to thank Ben Davies once again for taking the time to to do this interview with me. It was really informative and educational to learn more about ultra endurance racing. It's quite a new sport. It's growing rapidly, just like gravel racing has in recent years. And I think there's a lot to learn about it still. Unfortunately, in the past two weeks since I interviewed Ben, things have changed drastically and he's had to cancel his Cairo to Cape Town fast tour. Because of the COVID-19 virus, borders have started to shut down and it just became impossible to do. So let's hope that Ben has a chance to do it at some point in the future. It's unfortunate and um, many other races have been canceled. So let's all do our part. Stay home, flatten that curve, and then we can hopefully get back bike touring as quick as possible. In episode 32 of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the chance to catch up with Ari Hrugerbrug. 
He started in Newfoundland. He's cycling all the way across Canada in winter conditions. And then he's going to start making his way down to Ushuaia, Argentina. Join him on this episode. Find out about his motivations, why he started the tour, why he decided to quit his job and do this lifestyle. If you enjoy what you've been listening to in Bike Tour Adventures, please, by all means, go to www.biketouradventures.com. Check out the website. I'm slowly populating it with more and more content that I think might be useful for bike tours. Also, you can subscribe to whatever podcast app you're using. Click subscribe, like it, give it a review on iTunes. All those things help me tremendously. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.